How do we together dismantle barriers that exclude, recognize past trauma, and identify resources for those in need? This week's guest, Marisol Cuevero Rarucha, shares how implementing restorative practices changed student behaviors, connected the community, and recognized each individual person. In this episode, we discuss the importance of morning check-ins, restorative practices in circles, collective agreements, and Marisol's new book, Beyond the Surface of Restorative Practices. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Marisol, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's so, uh, I'm just really honored to be with you, Joshua. I'll be honest, I've had your name on a list of people I've wanted to have on my podcast for a little while now because of your new book. And I'm so excited that it's out and that we're going to have an opportunity to speak on that today and talk about something that I'm extremely passionate about, which is restorative practices. But I know that you're passionate about a lot of other educational topics. So I'm really excited to kind of dive into all of those things. But before we do, I would love to hear about your educational and leadership journey. Ooh, my educational leadership journey. So <laughs> like with everything in my life, it started with being a mom. Mm-hmm. I had my daughter, Camerina, who is now 27 when I was 19. And when she was six months old, I got I became pregnant with her sister, Emilia. And I was going to community college. So I'd actually walked across the stage when I was eight months pregnant with Emilia and um, transferred to San Diego State. And I did not make the best choice for a permanent father for them, their biological father. Mm -hmm. And I found myself, you know, like experiencing a life that I knew wasn't the life that was meant for me. And what I mean by that was not just being a single mom, but at some point I had to go on aid, have so much appreciation for the WIC program, the Women Mm -hmm. and Infant Children program that provides food and formula. And, and at some point I went on, on government aid and, and assistance and, and being in those offices, like I have a lot of gratitude for it, but I felt like there was just so much more that was meant for me and I was going to school. So for me, you know, getting my, my degree or going to college was never a question. I knew that it was something that I was expected to do. Mm. <laughs> and so I did it, but I, I had no idea in what, like what I was going to study or or what I wanted to do. And having my children, having my daughters really grounded me. So I had a professor who had us go through this exercise and think about like, who do you want your kids to be? Who do you want them to be as mothers, as workers, as like all these things, right? And then at the end of the exercise, she said, be who you want your kids to be. And I always loved writing. I always loved my, my English classes. I love reading. And so I, you know, I really felt like I needed to be grounded. And my dad at that time had been a mechanic for many, many years. He had his master's degree. And so he activated his degree and went into a teaching program in his late 40s, I think. And so I was like, no, like, I think I want to be, I want to be a teacher. And I was also very attracted to the security, I think, that, that it would provide for me and my girls and also the time. But it was also a combination of, I struggled a lot in high school, socially, not academically. And the friends that I was with struggled a lot. And so, you know, and struggles with, you know, I had a friend who sold drugs in high school um, for her boyfriend. 
you know, she later went to prison for a couple of years for transfer. Uh, she was she had hidden drugs in her child's car seat crossing oh. the border. So in high school, like we were seen, but we weren't seen, mm-hmm. you know. And so I knew that I, I knew that I wanted to be that person that would see kids. And so when I, I started teaching, absolutely, I was a middle school English teacher, became a high school English teacher. And I kept thinking, like, I think I want to get my master's degree. I wasn't sure in what. A mentor of mine was starting a, a program. She had already had her master's degree, but was starting an administrative credential program. And it was this brand new idea in the district. It was run by the leadership of the district. And I applied on a Friday and I got it. I, like I, And the Friday was the due date. So then all of a sudden I was like, oh, like I'm getting my admin credential. Like, okay, I thought that I would be like a resource teacher. But then, you know, so I had my credential and it was a good friend of mine who I know, you know, Shelly Burgess. Yes. Who had already, she had left the district where we were, the high school district, and was a principal in the elementary school. And it was after a conversation with her that I made the decision to activate my my credential and I became an assistant principal awesome. uh, in, in the elementary school. And so really, you know, like, oh, and I just, the first time I became a principal, I remember the overwhelming appreciation and honor that I felt at being a mom. I mean, they're different things, but to to be selected to hold the lives of children and staff and community and to be responsible for them to me was such an amazing honor. And I, so I, I was an elementary school principal. Then I moved to an alternative charter high school, yeah. which, you know, the alternative school system is my absolute heart. Yeah. And sure. then I, I led career readiness and CTE in the juvenile court schools. So in for our kids in detention, those who are foster homeless, mm-hmm. um, and pregnant and parenting teens. Yeah. So let's talk about the alternative high school mm-hmm. that you were a part of and associated with. What did that experience teach you? What it taught me in leadership was the importance of including your staff in decision making, of giving people space to take ownership of your collective work. And that through like that is how magic happens in schools. And so like getting everybody on the same bus going in the same direction and like, you know, and like as the leader, you're the person that's like guiding people, having having difficult conversations that yeah. they need to be had, but really trusting in in the people to make to make the choices about like how you're going to move forward mm-hmm. and to help build systems. So like if there is a question, we think we could do something better. Well, then like you open it up and okay, like then what are we going to do? And how are we going to do that together? And that really was just, that was my favorite, my favorite job. I learned so much in the elementary system, but the, like the magic Mm -hmm. happened in, in that alternative school. And if you worked in alternative schools, you know that the staff that you find there, the heart that they have for kids and the kids that come in, like the, the hearts that meet there is just, it's just a gift to be able to witness any and all of that. Yeah. You know, restorative practices is something that I know you're passionate about and hearing about your journey as a woman, as a parent, as a student, and then of course, as an educational leader, I'm just wondering when was it that you realized that restorative practices was something that you wanted to adopt and use for your students? So it was at the Alternative Charter High School. Um, our dean, Tommy Ramirez, Valent- Tommy Valentino Ramirez, he uh, was engaging the school in restorative justice. Mm-hmm. And we would practice, you know, we had circles with students. Everybody was trained in, in using circles. We used that same kind of way 
of being, you know, in town halls or when there were issues in the school. But what really, for me, what restorative practices is about as part of the restorative justice, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's really about connection. And so for me, my journey through really indigenous ceremony <laughs> and restorative practices came in at the same time. And what I mean at the alternative charter school, we would, we would do a, a sleepaway camp with the kids, mm -hmm. leadership camp. So we would engage in like, you know, some of the DEI kind of the equity mm -hmm. um, kinds of activities, like the privilege line, yep. we would do like the women and the men's talks, like, a, you know, a lot of those, a lot of those things, but we also would gather around fire and we would gather around the, the fire and almost not right, but almost in a ceremonial way, but yeah. without, you know, saying that that's, that that's what it was, but it was around the fire. We would pass the talking stick and we would share. And we had one of the events that we had was called the Cargas Fire. And carga in Spanish means to carry. So the carga's fire is where you offer, uh, you share, and then you offer something that's been holding you back, something that's been keeping you. And I, I describe, you know, that I want to be the best version of myself. But in order to do that, I got to face what's keeping me from being the best version of myself. Mm -hmm. And some of those things are your cargas. They're the things that, um, you know, they could be traumas that you haven't expressed. That could be pain. That you haven't expressed it could be worry it could be an experience you know and the things that came out at those gargas so that was also part of my own healing process was that every gargas fire it allowed me the opportunity to really connect with myself and to be willing to release something that i had been holding on to and to be willing to be vulnerable to share it mm -hmm. and to be willing to be vulnerable to share it as the school leader like the person <laughs> Yeah. Right. Like there's a there's a lot of pieces to that. So when I left that system, um, I, I moved into the county office and we were doing the restorative practice training that, you know, is the International Center for Restorative Practices. I started really doing that work with staff. So that was the key for me was was that I saw that the adults <laughs> were the ones that really needed those moments of yeah. like communication and ICU and connection. And again, you know, when I started writing the book, I invited Pedro, who's my spiritual brother, Teresas, who's a resource practice specialist. And it was in our conversations about in our work in restorative practices and our talking through the book and all of that, that we created almost our own ceremony again, you know, um, and he talks about in the book about going into the sweat lodge and how, how it aligned with his, you know, mm -hmm. his ceremonial way. So for me, restorative practices, the reason why I call it beyond the surface is that this is not like this is not something that you do. It's who you are. Yeah. It's really how you show up in your daily life and not just who how you show up at school, but how you show up every day in this life. Yeah, Marisol, the book, you just mentioned it, Beyond the Surface of Restorative Practices, Building a Culture of Equity, Connection, and Healing. And I really want to start off with maybe you just providing a synopsis of the book as kind of a baseline because I really want to build off of that and talk further about restorative practices. But for those who haven't had a chance to, you know, read this wonderful book, will you just give a quick rundown of what it's all about? Let me tell you why we need it. <laughs> we Please. need this work because like systemic oppression, you know, what our system is built on has caused generational trauma and yeah. generational inequities. Mm -hmm. And those inequities continue, uh, they, they continue to create disparities, academic disparities, poor social, emotional, mental, physical health mm -hmm. in, in some communities, the school to prison pipeline, poverty, continued poverty, 
And I really see these inequities now as I see them as a, a lack of peace. Hmm. So there is a lack of peace that is continuing to happen. And I say that because Mother Teresa said, when we, when we don't have peace, it's because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. And so for me, then the answer is, then how do we get back to remembering that we belong to each other? Yeah. How do we deal with this, with this very much lack of peace in our society? And it mm-hmm. continues uh, to be allowed to continue in our school systems. Yep. And the answer to that is by getting back to ourselves, getting back, like these systems have to be transformed, but we also need to allow for that transformation to happen. And it happens within us. And again, that question, like if we are trying to be the best version of ourselves, we got to face what's keeping us, right? And so along with, you know, being culturally competent, culturally congruent, um, being trauma aware, trauma informed, um, really providing, you know, being very, very student centered and providing social emotional supports. That's really then how we and engage and continue with being the, what I, you know, call the restorative way. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, adding a system so that you can track all of this, because I think you're looking at the data knowing that things are working, like that's a really important piece. And so in the book, so I come from the lens as a school leader. I come from the lens of somebody that has done this work with staff that has said this work, like if you're really restorative, then everybody in your system is engaging in check-ins and circles and learning and talking about having difficult conversations and like putting their stake in the ground around what their belief systems are and really talking through what your common expectations are for behavior and not just uh, in, in how we're going to communicate. And so that's where I come from the work. And so I invited Pedro because he is the classroom practi- uh, practitioner. Mm-hmm. So he, in, in the book, you'll have sections that are highlights from the classroom. And that's Pedro's work in being a restorative practice specialist and the work that he's done with his students. I also invited Dr. Carolyn Gary, who uh, wrote a chapter on being trauma-aware and trauma-informed, and Dr. Angelila Fauri who is a professor who added a chapter on active listening. Mm-hmm. So you'll find there's, you know, I'm very open about who I am and why I am. So there's there's that component, you know, that I talk about like and why this work is so important. And then there's tangible practices. And the part that I'm really proud of that I think is so practical is around like you have to set the foundation for this work to happen. And that foundation is collective decision making. And then being very clear about what your agreements are with one another, what your code of conduct, your norms, whatever you want to call it. I don't care what you call it. But that you have stated your expectations of one another and each other and you're holding each other accountable and you're practicing that. And that you're using then your beliefs as a group about the work aligned with your mission and your vision in your work. Like those things should be guiding your work. They should, and it shouldn't be just one group, one small group of people that make this decision about those pieces and it goes up on a poster on a wall. Like they need to be actively a part of your work. And of course, like I mentioned, resources. You talked about check-ins. So at your schools, Mm -hmm. when you were running check-ins, what did that practice look like? And what was the expectation for each one of your staff members? So at the beginning of any kind of meeting that we have, a parent meeting, any single meeting, a a team meeting, a a one-on-one meeting. So it could vary. Right. I think Mm -hmm. I always start off very structured. And then you once you feel comfortable and everybody's got it, you know, if you have somebody new that's coming in, you have it, you know, at the county office, we would have people all the time coming in. So at the start of a meeting, okay, so we're restorative practices. Uh, We we practice restorative practices here and we do a check in. So in this check in, we have a question. Everybody's going to go around and it's a reflective question. We're going to share. We listen. 
while the other person is sharing. And that means that we're not looking at our phones, that we're, you know, that we're fully present. And then we will have our meeting and then we're going to do a checkout to see how it is in that checkout. So, you know, and it could be one of the questions that I loved, especially for newbies is who are you and why are you here? Yeah. <laughs> because you're like, what do you mean? Who am I? And why, why am I where? And I'm like, what does it mean to you? As like, so in that, like people go deep. And I also mm-hmm. like, like one word check-ins or checkouts Just one word. What, what are you looking forward to today? What did you gain from our time? How are you feeling leaving our time that can also like expedite the process, but it's an opportunity to connect in a deeper way and in a kind of formal, informal way where everybody is taking turns sharing about themselves. So I love the piece that you brought up, you know, the check-ins, the circles, the agreements, there's ownership there. You're getting to build relationships and, and have an opportunity for everyone to feel like they belong. And then there's the secondary piece, right? Where students are potentially making poor decisions and there's a teaching piece to that, which is probably very different than the traditional model where it's probably looking more like a a punishment piece of ISS or OSS. So what were some things that you put in place at your campuses that helped students learn the correct behavior versus just the punishment piece? You have to set up the talking space Mm -hmm. and the trust so that when there is an incident of harm, when somebody is, is, you know, has harmed or has been harmed, that you can bring that and really talk about that. And then talk about together, um, I think, you know, establishing that understanding of, of how, like of how I was harmed or how the school was harmed in an incident, talking through together then, like, so what is the learning? What is, you know, this is a horrible word to use, but like there's consequences. There's yeah. consequences to what we do in this life. For sure. And at the charter school where I was at, I had an, one rule and that was be respectful. Be respectful of yourself, be respectful of others and be respectful of the school. Mm-hmm. And so, the, you know, if you did something to hurt, <laughs> harm yourself, if you were doing things to consistently harm yourself, either academically, socially, the same with other people and the school, then those could be reasons for us to, at that time, you know, we use the term counsel out. So this was six years ago. Some of this work is no longer happening, right? Mm-hmm. But this was six, seven years ago, oh, more than more than six years ago. So I was there in 2012. So that was almost 10 years ago now. But the this way of being allowed us, allowed for the kids to understand, our students and their families to understand mm-hmm. that the consequences, of the decisions that we were making based on the harm that was caused, um, there wasn't there wasn't fight and pushback around it because there was so much opportunity that had been provided in between, you know, as their time with us, as different things came up, there was always opportunity, there was always discussion. But if it ever got to that point, there there was so much that we had already done and worked on together. And we also always, you know, left students with this is how like, we want you here, we want you back. (laughs) Like, but here are some things to work your way back. Um, and some of those things would include like, if you, you know, here's, we found you another spot, you need to have good attendance, you need to earn, you know, you need to pass three classes and like, you know, like one or two things that they needed to do to come back. And that, you know, when the students would come back, they were really successful because they were, they were in a space that they loved that they wanted to be in, but they also had had that understanding and their behavior had changed. Right. (laughs) And not because the consequence, but because there was so much like clarity, I think in openness about the harm that was, had been done and how it impacted people individually. 
This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. So how did your staff feel about that shift? You know, you talked about bringing someone in to talk about restorative practices. And I know from my own personal experience, having a staff that was used to how they grew up, their own experiences of more of a traditional model of, of discipline, and then having someone come in and say, you know, this is another way of doing things. Did everyone accept that or did it take time? How as a leader did you kind of help them through that process of embracing restorative practices? So this is going to be, I mean, I'm not going to answer the question directly because when I was at the charter school, that restorative justices was already happening. So I came into the the work, into what they had already decided on. When I went to the county, the whole system was, was using restorative practices. But what was happening was that, so I had a team. And we had students, but I was no longer in charge of a school. Mm-hmm. So I was running career technical programs. So, and I talk about this in the book is that what like truly restorative systems look like and act like mm-hmm. and what they don't. Yep. And so some of the pushback that I would hear for good reason was that it looked like an incident of harm happened. And the only thing that the result was that the kids just got talked to sure. and there was no learning There was no, like, there was none of that deep learning about the impact of what they had done. Like, they were just allowed, quote unquote, to come back to the classroom without really having had those check-ins the way that we had them at the charter school. And that was from, um, you know, the, the people that were in the school site. So I was running programs throughout the school site. So my work was really with my staff. We didn't have the, that impact wasn't as direct as it is when you're the principal of the school, right? Yep. And I think like leading your staff through it and I, and I would see it. And so for me, like that work is not, but it's not truly a restorative system. Right. And there's also not clarity of communication. So, okay. So the discussion happens. So then what? Yeah. <laughs> so like, okay, so what was discussed? So what did the kid relay? Like what, especially when there were fights or, you know, like there, there was even like physical aggression towards staff, like really like what? So there was like that lack of communication. And so it can seem and feel very willy-nilly, very mm-hmm. much like, oh, we're going to kumbaya, but really like the kids coming back and as destructive as they were before, you know, like without really getting deep into like, what is it that's going on and what are these kids needs? I think even with that, like if this kid is showing out behavior in this way, like really what's what's at the root of it? Yeah. And what, what supports can we provide? Mm-hmm. So I think those are what I've seen, and very rightly so, as being issues with implementation. And I also think when you're not doing the work with staff. So as a trainer, and, you know, as I present on this, some of those questions happen like, oh, you know, like we say we're restorative, but we're not really. And my question is, is staff doing the work? Right. <laughs> are you running circles with your staff? Is Are all levels of leadership in those opportunities to sit in a circle together? And usually the answer is no. it's something like there's a restorative practice room or there is a restorative practice special, like that's somebody else's job. Right. Who's the trauma informed person? Like, no, (laughs) we all have to be in on the mix. And that's one of the big issues I think with, with implementation, because it's not real. Yeah. No, I think those are great points. So you had talked earlier about the piece of equity and the, the flaws and systems. And I think as you're talking, the more I'm relating those two as, as being equal, or connected in some way. I'm just wondering what you did within your schools as a leader 
to make sure that everybody had the same access and were treated the same and you know that there was true equity going on within your building yeah i have to go um i have to go back to i'm going to go back to the alternative charter school please so one of the things that would happen when i came in is they had these uh, they would call them sst so what wasn't a traditional sst there was basically like this big group of adults so like your counselor the school the school director the principal the dean of students your safety facilities person the attendance person the school psychologist if possible would all sit together and they would talk about issues that they would see with kids. Like, okay, like I heard this happen. I heard this, I heard da, da, da. And then they would leave mm. with no follow-up. And I even heard one time, like somebody should blah, 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 blah. So I brought this work to put, you know, we put a structure in place where we had um, a, a leadership group that was representative of all of the different, um, you know, all of the different content areas. And so like, hey, like we need to tighten this up. So they came up with the idea we had weekly SST meetings where we had a document where every single student's name, and it was a highly confidential document. Mm -hmm. But what we would do is we would take time to input any information that we had about kids and about what was going on. Because, you know, an alternative is like you get like stuff is happening with our kids. Yeah. And then we would, um, so then we would go, so everybody would have time to look and read and then input any new information. And then that team of six people, seven people that I mentioned would go through that list and, okay, what are we going to do? Like assigning caseworkers or assign people for the kids. Mm -hmm. But actually what I need to go back to is every single student that started at that school would go through a welcome and their family member would sit with, uh, with me as the director or the dean of students or the school counselor or another staff member. And we would go through who we were as a school everything like this is our calendar these are our classes and then also like these are our expectations mm -hmm. and we had the power agreements which i talk about in the in the book and in the power agreements like what is your strength it's potential ownership wisdom expectations and respect so which one of these and then i would ask the parents or you know the family representative that, that came with them what is what do you think is their strength and what are their goals like mm -hmm. what are your goals with us i want to go back to my home school i want to okay so we would create almost like a individualized file yeah. <laughs> for the student and then go in you know input their information which classes it was that they wanted to take what their goals were so that if anything came up we would go and we would have access to that student and know what it was like know a little bit about who they were know about their family and then also um, be able to really provide that individualized support. And what I loved is that we had the school psychologist. The other piece that we added right before I left was um, mental health interns mm. to be able to provide counseling in the school site. Yeah. And before I left also, we were providing work readiness and connections to jobs. People, we uh, partnered with another agency that was getting our kids jobs because a lot of them were struggling. Uh, with their families, you know, financially. So like really meeting the needs of our kids. I love that you had resources a part of that process too, because I think that's missed a lot of times. The mental health aspect, making sure that there's a caseworker or someone else that can provide for our students. Because I mean, as you know, with any behavior, there's something deeper going on with those students. And mm -hmm. a lot of times mm -hmm. what we have to offer as a school itself is not enough. We need to make sure that we have those resources for them. Well, and one of the greatest resources in schools is your staff, right? Mm -hmm. And Dr. Carolyn Gary, who wrote the book, she talks about three around me. And so she's done a lot of work in alternative schools in Colorado, amazing work. 
And she talks about like just making sure that each kid had or each person really has two other people (laughs) that's connecting with them. And so through that, what we call the SST process, there were multiple people that were, and we really wanted to make sure that the kid was matched with somebody that they had a connection with. Mm -hmm. So that if they were having an issue with someone else, (laughs) another adult, that person that was connected with them could help be like that bridge of understanding between the two parties. Super, super important. Yeah, I love that. All right, I'm going to shift gears on you a little bit because I know you've done some amazing work in the schools talked about being a director and now you're in a director role but in a very different way you're the director of culture and community for dbc inc so what made that shift for you to be in the private sector and what does that role now entail so i made the decision to leave the system and Mm -hmm. was doing was doing consulting and strategic planning and restorative practices and one of my clients was dbc dave and shelly who i've known for years yeah and i had started doing work with them consulting work with them and their authors who are predominantly white authors Mm -hmm. and really going into um, their own like issues with microaggressions or with prejudice or biases that were showing up in their manuscripts Mm. and, and some of their work. So, so that's how I started with them. And then I also, another client of mine, the national parents union, which is an advocacy organization for parents. They asked me to come on as their chief of strategy and partnership. So I'm leading you know, our legislative action and our partnership work. So that's my full-time job. (laughs) And then I I work at DVC. I am very busy, but (laughs) I I credit that to my dad's uh, comes from a family of farm workers. So I have a lot of high work stamina. And then I also do, you know, consulting with different schools throughout the country and, uh, and other organizations and nonprofits. But the work with DVC really has given me a lot of grounding and a lot of conversation around, I also am now referring to like going beyond the surface of diversity, mm-hmm. equity, and inclusion, and having those conversations with people and bringing things to light for them, specifically, again, white educators, bringing some things up that they were like, oh, like they hadn't even known. And a lot, you know, I, I don't know the percentage, but a lot of the, the authors, you know, they're pretty homogeneous, like mm-hmm. they grew up in a white area, they teach white kids. And so like very well-meaning, but really just needing to like, uh, knowing that they want to push through that and really be uh, have a deeper understanding of race and its impact of racism in, in our country, not of race, but of racism in our country and all of the isms. And that happened, you know, all, a little bit before and then during everything, you know, since George Floyd's murder, mm-hmm. which really catapulted the conversation in this country. Well, I always like asking my guests about ways to enhance our listeners' leadership journey. But I want to kind of have a little bit of twist on that with you, Marisol, because you have such a a passion about restorative practices piece and and the equity piece. So for those two subjects, what can our listeners do tomorrow and the next week to help in those areas for their campuses? So there's a bigger piece Mm -hmm. that I think is really important, and that is starting to do your own work and starting to do your work and ask yourself that question. Like if you're trying to be the best version of yourself, what's keeping you? from being the best version of yourself and starting to get into some of that deep reflection. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that like it, all of this starts with us and how we are perceiving the world and how we're reacting in the world. And so I really in- will encourage your uh, your listeners to do a couple of things. One is uh, listen to and find Father Greg Boyle from Homeboy Industries. 
watch a couple of his videos, listen to how he talks about the work. His population is very different. He works with people with severe criminal histories, drug, drug addiction, severe trauma. But he, the way he talks about how we approach that space with people, I think we can apply in our lives, in, in our work in schools. Um, he has also two books, Barking to the Choir and Tattoos of the Heart which I think are really, um, for me, like if you just look at, like read them and apply that, (laughs) you know, the lessons are very different. The stories are different. But if you think about like with a core meaning, when he talks about mutuality and kinship and and humanity, um, I think that that is really important. Um, I think, you know, for, for leaders that are interested in this work, always just working on your own authenticity and vulnerability, like starting to show up as who you are in this world and being grounded in yourself and being grounded and being willing to like, again, to do your work. That's really the best thing that any of us can do to, to, to start to, um, you know, make the, the transformational changes that are needed um, in, in this work. And there's of course, great resources, great book, and that I'm more than happy to provide you with a list of I've started listening to podcasts, but I'm more of a book reader and a and an article and a you know and a connector with people. So I just I want people to do their work. Well, Oops. yeah, I think you're completely 100% right about making sure that we identify ourselves, and I think that is the first step there. So I couldn't agree with you more. But before we we end our conversation, for our listeners who are wanting to know more and connect with you, how can they connect with you on social media? So I'm, uh, my name, Marisol Rucha, so M-A-R-I-S-O-L-R-E-R-U-C-H-A. I am everywhere under my name. So LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I uh, I was doing a show called The Nightly Restorative Check-In on YouTube. So there's some great episodes there on YouTube also on my YouTube channel. Um, and my website is in the works. It got, it got hacked and I just haven't oh. had time to. Yeah, so don't open my website right now because I don't, there's some, you might you might get some virus in your computers and don't go to my website. So I need to get that taken care of. But it's, everything is under my name. And um, I just also, you know, like I'm here for you. If people have questions, I try to really um, be responsive mm-hmm. as much as I can with, with my busyness, but I'm here for people. Like you want to delve in the work, like let's go. And I'll have all those links in the show notes and make sure that you connect with Marisol and then of course find her book buy it right away um, again it's beyond the surface of restorative practices building a culture of equity connection and healing and I just appreciate you so much thank you for coming on to the Aspire podcast and discussing such an important topic thank you so much thank you thank you thank you I hope that we can have a conversation and I can hear more about you and your work in restorative practices 